So who do you think is going to cry first tonight? I'm not going to cry. Oh, it's so going to be you. Nope. Yep. Gibby. And, and it's not just that it's going to be you. It's going to be like a minute in and it's not going to make any sense <laughs> why you it's did gonna it. It's going to be while he's doing the opening. Yeah. This is more fun rim. about film. <laughs> <laughs> This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. Doesn't Hudson usually do that? What, what? Hudson does usually do that. He's tired tonight. I'm leaning back in my chair tonight. Uh, I appreciate the responsibility bestowed upon me tonight, and I hope to not let you down or the listeners down. The listeners of this country. Well, you're getting pretty <laughs> off script so far. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Today's theme is movies we cried at. We'll be picking our top three most tear-filled movies. So, say your names and which emotion from the Pixar film Inside Out best describes you joy sadness anger disgust or fear this is lance sadness i feel sad a lot which is weird Aww. i don't cry a lot though this Just is a strange sad. one for me yeah i'm jordan i've never seen inside out so i don't know what any of these are they're emotions <laughs> jordan fear that's what i would guess for you yeah really yeah. My name is Hudson. I'm going to go with Joy. Wow. So so surprised. My name's Gibby, Kyle T. Gibson, and I pick... <laughs> Esquire. Esquire the I third. Like, I like when you're Kyle T. Gibby Gibson. Kyle T. Gibby Gibson the third. And uh, I guess I will choose disgust oh yes. why yeah because i had a, a burger tonight and usually they're delicious but it just didn't i don't oh, think no. it sits well why is horniness not an option on here <laughs> was that not one of the characters in inside out that was cut that had to be a joke it begs all of them. Yeah. Yeah. i bet they came up with a dozen of those too what about bulimia <laughs> is that feeling did i just get the title of bad boy a film podcasting back for a bulimia no, joke you're no. close we gotta we gotta wait i mean there's still another two hours of us uh, you have to make a bulimia joke about someone that actually has yeah. bulimia. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Then you get it. If any of our listeners have bulimia, please post that on our page. <laughs> Can I, I want to ask a question. Gibby, how hard was this for you to come up with this list? Like this is, I mean, for me, this would be like for me picking like top three movies that have people in them. All right. So go ahead and ask the question. Well, I think I did. All right. <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah, we did. So don't ask it again. It is tough. When my wife heard that we were picking this topic, she said, you know, you may be better off just telling them the three or four movies you didn't cry <laughs> at last year. This was an easy list to make for me in a way because there's so many choices, but the same thing is actually hard because there's so many choices. Can you talk about how embarrassing that must be? A you know, bit? I'm in touch with the inner Kyle, <laughs> the little kid inside of me. So <laughs> better ways to say that. <laughs> Let's just say out of the last 12 months of films I've seen at the theaters, I think there's only been three that I didn't tear up at, and that would be X-Men, Star Trek Beyond, and Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Huh. I think pretty much every other movie I saw. See, if I if that was me, I, I would have to stop going to movies because I don't really cry. I've probably got all this like pent-up emotion, so when I do, do. cry at a movie it's intense and i don't like it and so if i knew like what percentage of time like 80 percent of the time i was gonna go to a movie i was gonna cry i think i just have to stop oh i love crying in movies yeah. i do? do i do too but i want it to be special or like i want it to be, be yeah yeah i don't want to just cry in the middle of an episode of the goldbergs <laughs> <laughs> it's not in the middle it's at the end when the family all hugs because they all oh. learn a lesson it's a, for me it's like wow. one, once every five to ten years i'll see a movie that makes me cry it's wow. rare yeah and that that's probably how i am maybe maybe a little bit less than that since i had kids I cry more in movies, but uh, the last week I've cried in a lot of movies. Hey, right, Jordan, number three crying movie. The Station Agent from 2003, directed by Tom McCarthy, his debut film. Peter Dinklage plays Finn McBride, a quiet man, a 
obsessed with trains who leaves his life in the city when his only friend dies suddenly to live an even quieter life in an old rural train station left to him by his late friend. Finn's hopes for solitude are dashed, though, when he is unable to avoid some of the folks in his new town. Olivia, an artist suffering from some personal strife, and Joe, an annoyingly intrusive yet surprisingly endearing and likable food truck operator. Caught in a battle between isolation and community, Finn attempts to successfully navigate his new life and his new friends. You know, I've always heard this movie is awesome, but that sounds awful. <laughs> sounds like a terrible description of a movie. It yeah. does, which is funny because when I was trying to write the description of this movie, I kept thinking this movie sounds <laughs> terrible. It mm. sounds like some like hipster, like mumblecore type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just move on to the next one. To the next movie. <laughs> <laughs> Despite that, everything about this film is fantastic. Tom McCarthy wrote the Finn McBride character specifically for Dinklage, famous for his role on Game of Thrones. But he wasn't really known at all in 2003. No. So, uh, he's now famous yeah, for now being famous. on Game of Thrones. He's like, so why did he choose him? Yeah, why did he choose him? No one knew him. <laughs> Couldn't he have just picked the guy that played Willow? Yeah. <laughs> it was either Peter Dinklage or Matt wow. Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon. <laughs> like, this is a tightrope right here. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. The guy that played Willow is nothing to snub your nose at, though. Yeah, no, not at all, because Willow is awesome. And no, he's he in, was Harry, in Potter. Uh, Harry Potter. He was in yeah. Willow. He was in Willow. Other things. Harry Potter. <laughs> was he in Star Wars? Star Wars, mm-hmm. yeah. Dinklage, as you may know, was born with dwarfism. You might assume that this would become the central theme of the movie, but while obviously there, it doesn't dominate the story. It's merely an aspect of the man's life, given just the right amount of attention and subplot to add another interesting layer to the arc. Sometimes, in beautifully frank and uncomfortably hilarious terms. Like when Joe asks Finn... Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. You've had sex, right? regular size chick? Yeah. With a regular size chick. Bobby Cannavale is great in this film. He is. I'd never seen him anything before this movie, and I saw this at the theater when it came out, and I thought, that guy's fantastic. Yeah, he's great, and he's exactly the guy that I want to hate, yeah, but I but love him. him. I can't. I, I, I really like him. McCarthy so expertly portrays the moments when the threshold is crossed and individuals actually start to get to know each other. After Joe's incessant invitations, Finn agrees to sit at the food truck and have a coffee if Joe agrees to not bother him while he's reading. Joe struggles a little bit. You reading about trains? Yeah. What you should do, man, you should get a job on the railroad. You said you weren't going to talk to me if I sat here, Joe. I haven't said anything in like 20 minutes. Nine. You timed me? Mm-hmm. That's cold, bro. Were you intentionally trying to find the least interesting scene <laughs> in the film to read? <laughs> It's in these moments that friendships are built and struck down, and that's what this movie is all about. How much do we actually need other people in our lives? Why are we friends with the, with who we're friends with? How much control do we really have over our relationships? Who is there when we need someone? And when everything else is stripped away, who is left to lean on? There are two things that are almost guaranteed to make me choke up in a movie. The first is when true friendship is displayed and proven. That beautiful, caring, selfless, life-affirming act of loving another human as a friend. You guys don't know much about. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> You'll never experience that with the three guys at this table. I'm sorry I'm sad a lot. I can't always show you true friendship. When one friend, even at their lowest point, is still able to be there, care for, and hold up the other. I long for movies like that that push aside the high cinematic ideals of true love and romance and steamy, passionate pipe dream drivel uh. that Hudson loves so much. Instead, <laughs> focusing quietly on something so deceptively mundane, something so seemingly ordinary and common as friendship. 
showing us how truly special and rare it really is. The station agent does this so well. At its climax, showing this gem of human existence with such power and strength. My cheeks were wet and my eyes were puffy. Bravo, Tom McCarthy. I, I love this film. It's a great film. But Gibby did not cry during The Station Agent. What? Mm, interesting. Something's yeah, wrong. This is really bizarre. So I don't think the... that... I'm getting... Gibby hates friendship. Yeah, I don't think Gibby yeah. likes friendship. I don't care about you guys. It's just a way to make that money. That sweet podcast money. <laughs> I'm I'm very intrigued by the fact that they, they cast Peter Dinklage as, you know, and he, like we said earlier, he's dwarfism. Is that what we're supposed to... I, I don't know what the PC term is for this. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be... Dwarfism is the actual... Dwarfism is the actual... Okay. Yeah. But he... he were, they have conversations in the movie where they refer to him and other people with dwarfism as dwarfs. What's very interesting to me that they cast him in this movie, but they don't really, it doesn't sound like they focus on that very much, which I like right. that. That's right. that's that's kind of cool. Because typically if you're casting this character in the movie, you're just going to center everything around that. Like right, every exactly. scene's going to be like, oh, look at this guy. So that's cool that they put him in this movie and they didn't feel the need to just constantly go back to that. Yeah. That's and th- they don't ignore it either. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. I think it's a really interesting movie in that way, mm-hmm. in the way that it, it handles it. And he's not this like roadside attraction freak in any way. Yeah. Of course, he's the some, fact he, that all we've been talking about is his dwarf set, dwarfism <laughs> probably sets us back a little bit. Well, but I mean, he's just, it's just an awesome character. That, yeah, he's a great yeah I, I wonder what that does say about us. Is that we're just the product <laughs> of a culture where we're just yeah. constantly. Can you we, believe they treated him normal? I don't know. What the hell? <laughs> I find that really intriguing. And I, I, I haven't seen this movie. I, I really want to because I know both of you guys have said a lot of good things about it. I, I'll be also, I'm still even after hearing you read the plot and looking at the IMDb page that Gibby has up right now. I, I still don't quite grasp what all it's about or what the general it's, tone it's of it really is. It's really yeah. just about friends, <clears throat> okay, kind of hanging out. My number three crying film is I Origins, the 2014 film written and directed by Mike Cahill. I Origins stars Michael Pitt as Ian, a molecular biologist who is seeking to discredit intelligent design and therefore spirituality as a whole by filling in the steps of the evolution of the eye. That there is a missing evolutionary step between creatures with eyes and those without. As such, Ian has a fascination with eyes and one night, while at a costume party taking pictures of people's eyes, like a weirdo, he meets Sophie. She has unique and beautiful eyes, but she's wearing a mask so he doesn't see her total face and she disappears mysteriously into the night. A series of coincidences brings him back to Sophie and they begin a relationship. Sophie believes in spiritualism, Ian believes in rationalism, but despite their differences the two fall in love. Yet in one fateful day they attempt to get married. Ian has a breakthrough in his research. He is Temporarily blinded, and Sophie is killed in a horrific elevator accident. Well, ruined. Yikes. In the middle of that movie. Yeah, it happens really early, surprisingly early. Years pass by. Ian's been successful in his research. He remarries his lab partner, and the two have a baby. Yet when the baby is born, and the hospital scans the baby ir- baby's irises for identification purposes, the computer claims that the baby already exists. It turns out that there's also a recently deceased man with the same iris pattern. He starts entering photos of eyes he's taken into the database, and when he enters Sophie's eyes, he gets a hit on a young girl in India. Ian eventually finds the girl and begins to give her a test. A test to see uh, if she'll respond to images from Sophie's life. And the results end up being inconclusive. And uh, Ian is disappointed as um, this hardened scientist had dared to hope in something supernatural. And this is the moment that got me as they start to leave the hotel they're in. They get to the elevator and when the doors open... the little girl begins screaming and crying, clearly terrified of the elevator as Sophie had died in the elevator accident. It's at this point that Radiohead's motion picture soundtrack begins playing and it's when I lose it. It's also when it loses me. (laughs) 
Ian looks into the little girl's eyes and sees his uh, wife, or I guess almost wife. She hugs him and he picks her up and they walk down the winding stairs in a beautiful slow motion shot. Stepping out the front doors and into the light is Tom York sings, I will see you in the next life. It's weird and it's bizarre and it's beautiful and it's haunting. And you just um, told the whole movie. I just told the whole movie. Uh, but it's the change in Ian that really gets me going from this critic to believer and reuniting him with his true love in this really bizarre but creative and interesting way. Um, and it really it gets me every time. And I, and I think music plays a big part in all of these scenes that I talk about that I'm going to be talking about tonight. Um, and this one's definitely true. The that that Radiohead song had played a part in my own life, um, and so it brought kind of lots of those memories and lots of those emotions back to the surface. Um, played well in this movie yeah me too it brought back memories of me sitting around my house with my roommates listening to that song instead of me being in the movie in the moment that the characters were in and so it yeah how, me out how, and dare, totally how it. dare the director not choose a song that you had never heard why, you would, yeah. why, why not original music i mean like that a score that, or like right a song? that's what I, that's well, why i, I think don't songs can be used yeah. a bit to be very powerful and very amazing and, and i the think movie they i'll can, talk about in a little bit does the same i thing. think they can sometimes sounds like your own i understand problem. the argument for using the song it just ruins it for me. I actually love this movie. I think it's fantastic. Oh, you do? Yes. Oh. It, it actually exists at this intersection of me and Hudson's tastes. Although we don't agree on why we love this movie, we both love this movie. Lily, my wife, recently watched it. She loved it as well. But I mean, I would recommend this movie to anybody because I think it's awesome. It, it just, I was completely pulled out of the moment. If it had used original music in that spot, I think I would have cried maybe harder than I have in most any movie. Hmm. But instead, Very I did not. I didn't end up crying at all. They were there and and it was like I got like blue balls of the eyes, like blue eyeballs. blue eyeballs. I haven't seen this movie. You mentioned to me, and I remember seeing the trailer and thinking it looked really interesting because it, it raises questions that are very interesting. The, one of them being, how did we get here? You know, where we created it was, a, it was all yeah. just the product of um, natural processes. One thing I wanted to ask you is this movie trying to answer that question or just raise the question? And if it answers, you know, tell me what the answer is. It they does come not up to. answer it, in my opinion, but it more the two worlds challenge each other. Mm -hmm. You know, the the rationalism and the spiritualism which and, that's interesting because we, yeah. we've talked about on the show a lot we like movies that raise questions without trying to answer them and i don't know that you can come up with a definitive answer on this one you know there are certain actors that you just see and you just want to punch in the face michael pitt is one of those actors well for me. Because, because in every movie he plays a complete lunatic yeah it's, it's weird i thought that too and it, i remember seeing in the trailer and i thought isn't he supposed to be doing something <laughs> like i assumed he was just going to gouge people's eyes out and eat <laughs> them or something because that's what he's doing in every movie he's yeah. in but, but i think his casting works so well here because you don't like him at first and you kind of aren't not on supposed his to like side. Him. Right. right but the the journey that he goes through that you're really on his side by the end of it I don't think I've ever seen him in movies where I don't like him I remember him from Hedwig and I love that are people's eyes that uniquely identifiable just by sight this is it's all based on true science what 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 no. So that's a no. Uh, no, everybody has a unique iris pattern. Well, I know that, but I can't yeah. see it. Like, I've, I've seen you guys a million times, oh, but no, I couldn't uh, yeah. recognize it's, your eyes if I, I saw them on somebody I else. I shield my eyes from you. Like, if I saw somebody in China that had Jordan's eyes, I wouldn't start right. crying. Like, oh my no, gosh, no, no, it's no. Jordan. Yeah, but I mean, he had like a database that broke him down. It wasn't just looking at pictures. This has a device in it that to me is always a little bit risky because I usually hate it when there's like, I'm a man of faith. I'm a man of science. Yeah. I don't believe in your your wishful <laughs> yeah, thinking. Yeah, it's not as like, black and white as yeah, that. Yeah, it always drives me crazy. Yeah. So they don't do that. 
no, this no, movie. No, no, no. It's I, much, I much think more I think you that. would like this movie. Oh, I no, I want to see it. It looks it looks interesting. Maybe you'll cry. Maybe yep. I will, will not. Uh, who's up next? Gibby? Please cry, please cry, oh. please cry. Uh, just real quick, in picking this list, I picked three movies that I legitimately cried at. That, like tears came down. Well, that's good to know. And, yeah, that, um, that's you know, the, the topic. Part of yeah, the that's topic. what we're talking about. So it's topical. So, so one of my picks may be surprising because it's not generally known as a crier. Another one will not be a surprise, and one's just a small movie that I love. Great. Do you want to name them? The first, my third, my number three pick. Thanks for that preview. Is the uh, 2000 whimsical family comedy drama from probably my favorite director, Wes Anderson, The Royal Tenenbaums. I know when you first think of Wes Anderson and Royal Tenenbaums in general, it's not one that people think is that emotional or really a crying movie, but for really? whatever reason. I feel like everybody thinks that. Really? Yeah. It's a crying movie. Yeah, I'm not sure you've properly gauged the audience general public thought on this movie. This is, I'm talking about the movie where Bill Murray plays the mm-hmm. the Jean Cousteau type person mm. who goes into the water and kills a Close. tiger shark. Right. Yeah, no. yeah. Different movie. Is this movie the one with stop motion foxes? <laughs> Crap, what am I doing? Okay, maybe this is an emotional film. I just... Gibby just threw his computer across it's the so, I think it's... One of the reasons I don't think of it as an emotional film is because the beginning of it is so whimsical. You know, the first 15 minutes are just way as, as Wes Anderson... Most people don't cry in the first 15 minutes of Wes movies. Anderson's done, so I think it kind of sets Unless it's up. Yeah. The plot, quickly, if you haven't seen it, uh, first, A, what is wrong with you? And B, it's the story of an uh, older divorced man named Royal Tenenbaum, played by a wonderful Gene Hackman in one of his better roles, in my opinion. Estranged from his three adult children, who are all some form of prodigy. The oldest Tenenbaum child, Chaz, played by a subdued Ben Stiller, is a financial genius, raising two young sons, uh, sons on his own in New York after the death of his wife. Uh, the middle child, Margot, is a young playwright and adopted, as Royal never fails to mention, uh, is living in a lifeless marriage to Bill Murray's doctor. And the youngest Tenenbaum, Richie, a former tennis pro who just quit in the middle of his last tournament in one of the funniest sports scenes I have ever seen. In it's a film. great scene. That's 72 unforced errors for Richie Tenenbaum. He's playing the worst tennis of his life. What's he feeling right now, Tex Hayward? I don't know, Jim. There's obviously something wrong with him. He's taken off his shoes and one of his socks. And Actually, I think he's crying. I think you're right. Who's he looking at in the friend's box, Tex? That's his sister Margot and her new husband, Raleigh Sinclair. They were just married yesterday, Jim. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Royal's finally been kicked out of a hotel where he was living and decides to fake cancer and somehow gets the whole family to live back in the house they grew up in. So it's like Miss Doubtfire? Yeah, he Royal dressed up like a woman <laughs> and became the maid for the Hello. house. I've seen this movie. Hello. Probably. <laughs> that thing that's, a good, that's a good Gene Hackman. <laughs> uh, I can't do Gene Hackman. I can do Alan Alda after watching Royal Tenemons. Right, Would you like that? Yeah. It's, it's Alan Alda here. It's, uh, I just saw Royal Tenemons. A great film. Great film. Love what you, love what you did with that film. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Nice. Wow, that was really good. <laughs> I, I just feel that this movie is kind of the story of family. What a deep connection family has and how they can screw you up and how they can lift you up at the same time. So I've seen this movie probably five to six times in my life. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> I probably have seen it more than that, actually. <laughs> I don't know why I said five to six. Like, that's an impressive number. 56. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've seen this movie five, six times in my life. Uh, <laughs> it's pronounced 56, Gibby. <laughs> Are we supposed to guess where you cried? Yeah, guess where I cried. Because it's, I mean, there's one spot where everybody cries. Uh, yeah. In the movie theater. So I watched this again probably for the first time in six to seven years. Uh, this summer. 67. 67 years. And the first few times I'd seen it, there was one part in the film that makes me cry, and it made me cry this time. But this time around, there's two or three other parts that got me that hadn't gotten me before But is, is it the act, or is it the, the Elliot Smith song? That's not it. Why that's don't not you the go part ahead that's and... always made me cry. So that's, that is one part that kind of got me this time. It got me choked up. The wonderfully shot, in my opinion, suicide attempt by Richie, uh, played by Luke Wilson, in this real intimate and 
kind of intense and emotional. He cuts his hair and shaves his beard, and Wes Anderson just keeps the camera focused on him the whole time. I think it's a beautiful shot film. And it is. I like the song to it. Jordan does not. I imagine. Needle in the hay? I don't remember, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> we just assume you hate every yeah, song yeah. ever used in a movie. It's, no. It's scored I, to I, a I think it's a great song. song. I just don't think it should be in movies. Yeah. For whatever reason, this time it got me. And That's the scene that made you cry? No. I mean, it, that had never made me cry before, but this past summer I saw it and I did Why don't we get to the scene that made you cry? Why don't we get to that part that made you cry? So the one part that gets me every single time. Mother of God. <laughs> Oh, man. It's just one line towards the end of the film. So a wedding's been crashed by Owen Wilson's drugged-out author character. Oh, Wedding Crasher. Yep, it's the Wedding Crashers. That made me cry. Uh, there's a beautiful crane <laughs> We're shot. We're never going to get to this, <laughs> ever. Showing There's this beautiful crane shot showing the havoc that Wilson's character has created. And it just goes through every character in the family, and it ends up on um, Chaz and Royal. So Ben Stiller and Gene Hackman's character. And Chaz just looks at him and says, I've had a rough year, Dad. I know you have Chaz and it, it just gets me every time. Yeah. Did it just get you just now? crying? I think it yeah. got a little close. Wow. Got a little close there. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people who reference that scene as making them cry. Mm. This was a film where I, I felt like Wes Anderson really kind of became Wes Anderson. And it's not my favorite of his movies. Rushmore is the one he did before this is actually my favorite. But I feel like this is where he just kind of put on the full press of what a Wes Anderson movie can do and how effectively that he can, even with his quirky sense of comedy, make a truly like heartfelt film. I didn't love this film when I first saw it because I like my Wes Anderson to be a little funnier and I wasn't expecting it like I wasn't expecting it to get that intensely emotional Rushmore plays with that a little bit but never mm -hmm. really goes for the kill like like uh, Royal Tenenbaums did but upon second viewing I, I love this movie this is a great choice and I, while I didn't cry at it I can totally understand why someone would this is my least favorite of the first four Wes Anderson really uh -huh. I haven't seen it in a long time but I've seen it multiple times and it's always been my least favorite but maybe I'll watch it again I always feel like I like this less the more I watch it so many parts feel so contrived or mm -hmm. like it's a movie like it's set up to be a movie and it's not natural storytelling i feel like he's gotten a little more natural as he's gone on yeah and he does he does set it up like you're reading a book though because there is an alec sure. baldwin character throughout the movie and he shows the book going from chapter to chapter and i think that line resonates so much with people because i feel like everyone said that like you know how yeah. life you have these ups and downs and it's always like you know man it's been a rough year or oh, it's been a great year i mean i just feel like everybody can connect with that well it's it's line. also a moment where this this guy and while gene hackman's character is really funny in it he's such a prick this is the moment where he is finally connecting and being a father and you haven't seen that the entire movie and this is where he finally comes through and does what you've wanted him to do the whole movie and the Chaz character is so tragic throughout the movie he's so pent up and, and emotional and finally yeah. these two open up to each other and it's a really great moment yeah like the whole movie Chaz has been fighting back against Royal yeah, he's hated him yeah. he, he's the one kid that's really called him out for what he's been yeah. Lance okay uh, my number three film is Life is Beautiful 1997 Roberto Benigni film this Italian movie follows the story of Guido a carefree Jewish librarian as he attempts to shield his family from the horrors of the Holocaust that is happening all around them. Is, after, when, is this before or after he meets up with Han Solo? And that? I don't understand what you're doing. <clears throat> Isn't his name Guido? Greedo? Guido. Oh, Greedo? The guy yeah. that... Yeah. You ruined my thing for that. <laughs> right. Thank you. Can I get back to the show? Uh, sure. Can we do that now? For okay. a second. After he and his wife and son are thrown into a concentration camp, camp, he creates a fantasy world for his son in which he imagines the camp is a game, the Nazis are actors, and the grand prize for winning is a tank. People didn't know what to make of this movie when it came out because it was a comedy about the Holocaust, a Holocaust comedy.
comedy, and that shouldn't really exist. Holocomedy. Holocomedy. It definitely goes back and forth between being an almost Charlie Chaplin type slapstick and, and a moving Holocaust story. And I usually hate it when movies throw conflicting tones at me because I can't focus on one, so I just give up on both. But the transitions here are seamless, and they actually seem to play off each other in a way that I wouldn't have thought possible. I'll give you an example. There's a scene early on where Benini is still trying to woo the woman who will, will eventually become his wife. He's been the victim of a hate crime in which someone has painted his horse green and written anti-Semitic slurs all over it. He covers the slurs and turns the horse into a magical looking creature, which he uses in a successful romantic gesture to carry his future bride away. That's what makes this movie work. It's a main character who epitomizes the concept of turning the other cheek, who takes every insult and personal slight against him and turns it into something beautiful, whether that be a way of winning a woman over or protecting his son. Two scenes in particular really get to me in this movie. One is one in which Benini, now in the concentration camp, sneaks into a restricted area of the camp where he finds a record player and he plays Belle Nui. Loudly over the camp speakers, knowing his wife will hear it as, a, it is all, as it has always been their song. And it's one of those heartbreakingly romantic scenes that I've ever seen in a movie. The second is, and this is a big spoiler, but Benini's character does die at the end of the movie. He is being marched at, at gunpoint by a German soldier to an alley where he will be shot. And he knows his son is hiding because he's hidden his son in a, I think it was like a garbage can. Mm. And he looks over and his see, he sees his son staring at him. Knowing he's about to die, he does this silly march and wave to make his son laugh. Even as he knows he's going to his death, he's still concerned about making sure his son isn't afraid. And that was just... Even as I'm saying it, I'm getting emotional. That almost got me emotional. Um, I've never even seen the movie. We realize that there's been a, there's a narrator at the beginning and the end of the movie, and we realize that the narrator is Guido's son. And he says at the end, this is my story. This is the sacrifice my father made. This was his gift to me. I remember getting in my car after seeing this movie, and I couldn't drive for about 10 minutes. I just sat there and wept, not only because of the sadness, but because there was something in this character that I wanted for myself. We've joked about me being a cynic before. And I, this wasn't, I wasn't joking. Were you guys joking? <laughs> was, was what you wanted was death? No, it, this character embodied the opposite of cynicism, a better way of living and a better way of looking at the world. And it, it did so in a way that melted the heart of this cynic. I saw this film fairly soon after it came out, I think right before the Academy Awards in 2001, 2002, whenever it was that he ended up winning. I really, really liked it. You know, it, it broke me. But then I watched it probably six or seven years later. It broke, <laughs> it broke you? Yeah, that's the problem we now today, guys. 2002, I was normal. <laughs> Like, um, like Drago and yeah. Rocky Four, <laughs> I will break you. Then I watched it again probably seven or eight years later, and it just didn't affect me the same way. And I don't know if it's because of second viewing, you know what's happening. or Well, I remember you became I, a big Holocaust denier. Yeah. Yeah. So that probably had something to do with it. I think probably a lot of it is. Initially, when it came out, it had fantastic reviews and was must-see. Then there was a big backlash after it. After he won the Academy Award, there became a big backlash. Well, by Holocaust deniers, yeah, there was a huge backlash. Yeah. Well, I don't remember those. I thought I know it's universally loved. No, yeah, I, think I, don't, I don't remember any backlash. backlash on it. Because of what he did at the Academy. Academy Awards. I don't remember if you remember it or not, but when he won the Academy Awards, he started running up like on the chairs of the. Yep, it was obnoxious. Yeah, it was very. He's very obnoxious. I did. I, I see. I, that's interesting, and I, I was going to mention that. But he's an interesting character, and he, he was in movies for a long time. He was in a lot of Jim Jarmusch movies. Yep. He's done some stuff since then, but he really burst into the American consciousness for like a year, and then he was yeah. gone. Yeah. He very much embodied this same character. He seemed to have this love for life that I found very infectious. I loved that thing at the Oscars. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, go to YouTube and watch it. It's great. I didn't actually think just, it was obnoxious. 
it's just Oscar's needs. Really. It is. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's this man experiencing sheer joy. And what he did was when he won, he stood up on the chairs and started walking around because he was just so happy. And I believe at some point he said he wanted to make love to everyone in the audience, not in like a perverted and, and way. And then, like, and then he, he did. did. He did it. At the, at the yeah, after and they had party. to censor it, and it went on for hours. <laughs> just pixelated. <laughs> would have to. Yeah, like it was rough. Hundreds and thousands of people in there. Now that I think about it, I don't like him so much anymore. <laughs> but but he, he's and an interesting guy. They all cried. Yeah. While yeah while he was. Where are we going here? Where are we going? I think we're moving to the next do you one. Think, do you think Jerry Lewis is upset about this? Gibby is referring to a, a movie called The Day the Clown Cried, mm. um, which we'll never talk about the show. We might as well hit it real quick. Well, uh, how do you know we'll never talk about it? <laughs> because no, no one's ever seen, seen it. it. Oh, uh, right. It, it is a film uh, Jerry Lewis made about a... It's, he was a clown. Yeah. He was a clown, and he's Jewish, and he gets thrown into a concentration camp. And he was so embarrassed by the movie, I'm not really sure why, he put it in a safe, and no one's ever seen it. I didn't but realize the story, no the story is it. fairly similar to this. It's very similar. In the day the clown cried, apparently his character is a clown, and uh, he, what his job is, this is awful, is to make the kids happy and smiling while he leads them to the That's what it was. That's what it was. Wow. Yeah, and it, sa- it sounds brutal. It's It's been locked up. Very few people have ever seen it. It's kind of one of the holy grails of the film world that wow. no one's ever seen it, and there's a debate whether anyone will ever see it. I think he said no one will ever get to see it. Yeah. I, I'm still wow. a little unclear as to why, though. Is it because he was just, he didn't think it was appropriate? I think that, you know, he thought it was his big emotional dramatic move into like because because prior to this he had been jerry lewis the crazy goofball guy yeah, i love him so i think this was his try to attempt to get into respectability and he wrote it directed it i believe and it just didn't come off yeah, it, like I guess, yeah i think wow. he probably got a lot of backlash as he was making it too like why are you doing this jordan you're number two a perfect world from 1993 starring an awfully hunky and charming kevin costner directed by clint eastwood who also stars both of these men coincidentally had received best director oscars in the three years prior not all three years but they both won it in the three years prior to this movie. Costner for Dances with Wolves and Eastwood for Unforgiven. It was written by John Lee Hancock, who would go on to write and direct a movie that definitely does not make me cry. The Alamo? (laughs) (laughs) After that one. Blindside. Yes, The Blindside. You know, The Rookie makes me cry. I haven't seen that, but I'm not surprised that it makes you cry. (laughs) You guys want to keep going with that for a while? We'll just talk about two other unrelated movies? Nope. Costner plays an escaped convict named Butch Haynes, who kidnaps... Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) I think those were Gibby's tears hitting the table. (laughs) Costner plays an escaped convict named Butch Haynes, who kidnaps a young boy named Philip while stealing a car. Butch and the boy become unlikely friends and partners as they are pursued across rural 1960s Texas by Texas Ranger Red Garnett, played by Clint Eastwood, and his team, including the great Laura Dern. I first saw this movie when I was 12 or 13 at my friend John's house, and I believe it was the first time I ever cried while watching a movie with a friend. (laughs) Why is that so funny? It's just an odd thing to remember. Even even I don't do that. Really? It's the first time I cried while eating pretzels. (laughs) (laughs) This movie hits on the second thing that almost always guarantees a tearful Jordan. Well-played parent-child stories, most often father-son scenarios. As the film unfolds, we see the boy finding the father he never had in his kidnapper, Butch, and we see Butch become the man his own father never was. The relationship, communication, and bond built between Butch and the boy is so honest and open and vulnerable and encouraging, and the movie isn't afraid to go there. Not far into their journey together, there's a scene that displays this extraordinarily well. Butch has bought Philip some new clean clothes and is trying to get him to put them on in the car. Philip is hesitant because someone told him earlier that his penis was puny. Not nice. No. That hurts. It really If I had a nickel. I know. (laughs) You'd have like a million dollars. I got it. Sort of see how relatable this was for Jordan. (laughs) Butch says, You embarrassed because I might see your pecker? It's 
puny. What? It's puny. Who told you that? Let me see. Go on, I'll shoot you straight. Hell no, Philip. Good size for a boy your age. It's this simple kindness and patience for a child and a child that he's kidnapped and is taken care of, no less. Was the rest of the movie just about that? Like, yeah, just it's talking just a about lot that. of pecker talking. He's like, yeah. you yeah. sure? He's, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. it is. The boy just can't get over it. Yeah. yeah. And that's the other thing that I find so powerful and moving. The rejection of the idea of good and evil as a black and white concept. That judging or defining a person based on just a portion of their actions, positive or <laughs> negative. you say a portion of their <laughs> anatomy. <laughs> a portion of their anatomy. Yeah, I mean, if you have a small penis, it doesn't mean you're a bad guy, right? Uh, Oh. Agree to disagree. You like me. <laughs> <laughs> I, but that doesn't say whether this is you're really, good or bad. This is really going off the rails. <laughs> yes, it is. Super. That judging or defining a person based on just a portion of their actions, positive or negative, is murky and ambiguous at best. I think the movie may have actually helped shape my later views on capital punishment and the inherent worth and potential kindness of any individual. But despite all the seriousness and weight in the moral thread of a perfect world, it's actually got a ton of humor in it. There's there's a great uh, this is visual well. joke. There's a great visual joke? Are we going <laughs> to... <laughs> Do you know what medium we're doing this on? <laughs> Please keep going. No, let's show him the clip. Yeah, show him the clip, Jordan. <laughs> there's a there's a trailer right, that comes unhitched from the truck. It's, yeah, it's the funny. trailer comes unhitched from it's the truck, funny. and they just stare at each other. Oh, funny. Really? Yeah. That's, oh, that's good stuff. I'm sure the audience is rolling. I think this is some of both Eastwood and Costner's best work, but the movie, while well-received, seems largely forgotten, which is especially funny since the critic's quote on the back of the DVD says, giant, four stars, a movie that will endure. <laughs> it's a reliable source. No, that's um, funny, it's an interesting device in a movie when like a bad man kind of finds his soul yeah. and exposes that he's more than just that. I remember 310 to Yuma, that was one thing I really loved about yeah. that movie is that that played into that. Um, this, is a, this is an interesting movie of kind of almosts. Uh, Steven Spielberg actually considered yeah, yeah. directing this. And I've always wondered what kind of movie it would have been if, if he had done it. He wanted to make a Holocaust movie instead. And a dinosaur movie. The, the other thing that was interesting was Denzel Washington was originally set to play the main role. And usually when you hear facts like that, it's like, oh man, good thing they got the guy they got. But I I wonder if this wouldn't have been a better movie had Denzel Washington played it. Oh, I don't, Costner's I don't, great. Well, he, you know, yeah. I, that's not a knock on Costner, but I wonder if, if the idea was that Costner was trying to reach over all these barriers, you know, the age difference. In fact, one's a criminal, one's an innocent boy if you added a racial element to that i think it could have been even more interesting especially in the time that it's set it's set in the 50s i think early 60s i just wonder if that wouldn't have added an interesting layer to it i i agree i mean i think that would have been fascinating yeah i don't really understand why this movie hasn't maintained its it was kind of a bomb when it came out yeah in, i don't, I don't understand US, why it wasn't it really 30 good movie. million which wasn't huge but overseas internationally made 100 million which back in the 90s was big huh. i mean the was drama wouldn't make 100 Costner's million i think it was based star? on Costner. he was he has he would he was, he was risen he was by that back point. then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Americans just had a hard time seeing Costner in this role because he was. I mean, Man, he's he's, he's a, so good. Enough. He's super charming, but he's also bad. A lot like the Russell Crowe character in 310 to Yuma, actually. Maybe America wasn't ready for a movie about kids' genitals. <laughs> My number two crying film, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part <gasps> 2. Everybody knows Harry Potter at this point, and this is the final film in the eight-part series. These last two movies are a giant emotional roller coaster for me and something I feel like they can only be pulled off thanks to the groundwork laid in the previous films. And something unique is this kind of long-form storytelling hasn't really been done before in film. By the time you get uh, here, you're fully invested in the story. But the moment that gets me has to do with my favorite character in the entire series, 
Severus Snape. Uh, and at this point, we're still not sure if Snape is a good guy or a bad guy. As Unless been, you've read the book. As he's been playing both sides. Trusted by both Dumbledore and Voldemort. Voldemort has the Elder Wand, but since Snape has killed its previous owner, Dumbledore, he believes it will not serve him until Snape is killed. This sounds super lame if you had no <laughs> idea what's going on with this. But yeah, it feels lame. Yeah. Billions of people know what's happening here, so I don't feel like I'm being a super nerd. Mm. So Voldemort sixes <laughs> Snake Najimi on Snape in what is probably the most graphic. Like a tongue twister, you just sever his snake, snicks his snake on. <laughs> Probably the most graphic death in the series. As Snape breathes his final breath, Harry Potter approaches, and Snape looks into Harry's eyes. He begins to cry and says, Take them, referring to his tears. Harry gathers the tears, and Snape's final words to him are, You have your mother's eyes. Harry later drops the tears into the pensive? Yeah. Pensive? I think that's what it's called. And we see Snape's memories finally explaining his story in full. As a young boy, he meets Harry's mother, Lily. They connect over being young wizards and become good friends, but they're sorted into opposite houses at Hogwarts, where Lily meets and falls in love with James Potter, who was a bully to Snape. Voldemort hunts down Harry Potter, Lily's only son, who is prophesied to defeat him one day. He kills both his parents and attempts to kill Harry, and Dumbledore leans on Snape to protect Harry, saying... If you truly loved her, speaking of Lily, Dumbledore is awfully manipulative in this movie. Yes, he is. You find out how Snape has gone out of his way to protect Harry over the years in secret, all because he loved his mother. We see Snape crying over Lily's body with baby Harry in the background. And finally, when Snape produces a Patronus of a doe matching Lily's, Dumbledore asks, After all this time. Always. So this is like the biggest spoiler yep. in all of our series that we've talked about. Because this essentially eight. spoils yeah, eight this movies. Is, this is eight movies. I gave you guys a warning earlier. <laughs> Maybe you should have started this one I off gave with. gave you guys uh, a warning earlier. Biggest spoiler ever. It is my favorite storyline in the series. You cried at this part. I cried at this part. And were you, yeah, were you time. 10 years old when you watched this or were you like an adult? <laughs> no, it was like last night. Got it. Um, I'm just trying to find out how we went, went from movies about the Holocaust to uh, wizard kids. Mm. How did that happen? Well, that's, that's the power of movies. Well, I just... I want to. I just when I have to quit this podcast to maintain my dignity, I just want you guys to. Know, I want to point out moments like this where we had to talk about Harry Potter well, making us cry. Talk, yeah, with the most successful film series of all time, <laughs> arguably. Uh, Transformers <laughs> is a successful film series. That doesn't make Ooh. it great. So when this Ouch. film came out, Hudson and I loved it. Lance was like, "Oh, it's so far." No, I like Harry Potter. And I so read then, all the books. And nobody cares about I, my opinion. So Gibby has yeah. no idea how I felt about it. <laughs> yeah. Jordan, Jordan liked the Snape thing. Uh, <laughs> if they just didn't put that, I remember cave us texting back and forth and Hudson and I just defending this over and over again and say, oh, this is a series that's going to be shown in colleges for years to come. And it turns, turns out they're not. Colleges. What is, yeah. What, yeah. You thought, hey, tell me what you thought. You thought they were going to show this like in film schools? I think I do remember yeah. having yeah, this argument. I said that I still too. Think they Absolutely. Are. Really? You yeah. think that? I don't that think is they adorable. Are. I think that people in film schools will watch these movies. Yeah. I mean, this, sure. is, a, this is a super well-crafted <laughs> film. <laughs> I, think, I think, I don't think Jordan's agreeing series. with you. I think he's <laughs> No, saying, Jordan's right. Jordan's <laughs> right. This is a super well-crafted film. I want to challenge you on something, Hudson, in our overrated episode you wrongly picked empire strikes back Correct. Uh, you agree that you wrongly picked it good we're getting we're making <laughs> yeah, progress on this show <laughs> um you said that one of the things you did that the reason that didn't connect with you is because you said well we know luke skywalker is not going to turn bad did you really think harry potter was going to die in this series i honestly did not know really i'm going to agree with hudson here mm. i didn't read the later books first but in the movie i thought that he might die and i mm. actually there's a part of me that kind of wishes that they'd ended it 
that yeah, way. Yeah, that's that's the amazing thing to me is if he had died, it would have been a satisfying ending. Let me say this okay. uh, about the reason that this really got to me, though. The whole thing is about the kind of theme is the power of love over darkness and over greed. And to me, Snape is the giving tree in this movie. You mm. know, the Shel Silverstein story about mm-hmm. the tree and the little boy comes and as he grows up, he takes pieces of the tree. The Snape is showing unconditional love that he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives all out of his love for Lily and ultimately giving his life for this love, which mm. I think as an allegory, it's extremely beautiful as a true kind of love story. It's a little disturbing, but I just, I, that always gets to me. The idea of unconditional love, the idea of grace really hits me hard. I, I'm, I'm, I'm making fun of you, Hudson. These are great movies. This whole series is fantastic. I, uh, I would definitely recommend everybody watch it. If you yeah. have 20 hours one day <laughs> yeah. and not do anything. I cried in six and seven, a and seven B. I, yeah. I, I guess it's hard for me when a movie has this much like CGI fantasy in it. Yeah. I just, I'm never grounded. It doesn't really ever connect with me on that level. Cause I'm like, Oh, they're crying, but it's a wizard with a wand. And I don't mean that to say that the movie doesn't work. It's a great movie. It just, it can't connect with me on that personal human level because it's just so I out, actually out think I might be the opposite. Really? If I think of movies, I mean, all three of my movies I'm talking about tonight have some yeah. sort of science fiction element you, to them. I'm not sure you watch element. movies that don't have that. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's all it is. Gibby, your number two. My second pick may be a little controversial, but this is because I'm the bad boy of our podcast. <laughs> My second pick is Pixar. Before we get too deep into this, Gibby, can you just give us a rundown of the director and a brief synopsis of I've got an Pixar hour to kill. Of- Go for it. I w- can I say, I was in I was in San Diego last week with my nephews, and they have this thing every night where they get to pick one toy to go to bed. And it's a nightmare trying to get them mm-hmm. to just choose one toy. And and, and I, But I, I'm going through that right now with a 39-year-old man <laughs> yeah. who can't play by the rules. I don't. How are we going to talk about, how and many movies is this? All I want to hear is about how you cried at Cars 2. Yeah. How, why, what scene in Okay. Cars too. So you can't, I will, you I'll can't caveat pick it. 15 movies. That's not how this works. There are four of them I did not tear up at. Cars, Cars 2. <laughs> well, two. Finding, there finding two. Dory. This is a good use of time. Yeah, this finding, is great cars, analysis. Cars 2, Finding Dory, and uh, actually, that's it. I'm so mad right now. A bug, <laughs> Bug's Life. So every Pixar movie I go to, I'm just prepared to, by the end, I'm going to tear up yeah, and let's be see kind what of you a puddle. Right now? Yeah, go for Which it. One? What? Show us your pecker. Make, make this your <laughs> we'll shoot you straight. This is so a perfect <laughs> let's, world. Let's hear this argument. <laughs> that's good for a guy your age. <laughs> I'm just cha- I'm challenging you I'm challenging you to make this a viable segment. Yeah, go for it. You know, I feel silly about this because these are movies about- Yeah, you should. Very. Yep. About talking for fish choosing or, that many or toys or fluffy monsters, but man, they get me. You feel you feel silly for the wrong reasons. So you know, from 1995 <laughs> until now, even silly is the wrong years word. Later, yeah. I think you should say, "I feel like an ass." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am the adult man that sits in these theaters and cries alone <laughs> and sad. If I had to pick which one, maybe you did have to pick <laughs> which one. You didn't do that. That's the problem. That was the whole point. <laughs> I, t- I remember I texted you a couple nights ago about this when you said you're going to do this and I said can you just pick one and your response was no that's all you said no probably Toy Story 3 or Inside Out still, still not still not doing or it or Monsters Inc if I had to pick one it'd you be just one, to pick one. Three. if I had to pick one it'd be these three. Oh, Wally too the first oh. 10 minutes of Up crap 4.1 I, I can't pick one of them oh, that's no, it's the definitely got to be Toy Story 3 or Inside oh. Out stop it it's Toy Story 3 that's the first one you said yeah. talk Toy about Story Toy Story 3 so Toy 
Toy Story 3 is the third. Be careful, though. I haven't seen it yet. Don't spoil it. Are you serious? I'm serious. Are you serious right now, Clark? Lance hadn't seen it either. Okay, why is Toy Story 3 you said, God, I mean, it's, this is like dealing with a five-year-old trying to pull it out of him. Hey, yep. buddy. Yeah. What do you think about the movie? So go back to Jordan's first choice. No, this is about your movie. What's the first movie you picked? About friends and stuff? Station Agent? It's about friends, and the Toy Story series to me is about the power of friendship. And the third movie just amps that up even more so. And there are it's two like scenes three at the times end. Yeah, it's like three oh, times wow. the amount of the first one. There are two scenes in the last 20 minutes that, I mean, I'm just a puddle. There's a scene involving a trash compactor oh, that's no. just oh, no. nearly impossible to get through. And then the very end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get a little more detail? And- what about trash compactors make you cry? <laughs> They've taken a lot of good What about the trash me. compactor? What happened? Yeah. So the end of Toy Story 3, the whole gang is together. The gang that we've grown to love over the first three films. The they're, characters they're, in the movie. The characters yes. in the movie. Yes. Yes. They're in a trash the compactor. Woody, Buzz, Bo Peep, all those others. Sure. Yeah. Which one's they're your favorite? This, don't, Jordan, don't. <laughs> don't I mean, it's, t- it's, taken, oh, it's so hard to get him to this point. Uh, don't that, that derail pig, this. That pig's pretty good, too. Stop. <laughs> Keep going with the scene. So they're all in this trash compactor line, and it just ends to a landfill where there's a big fire, and they go in there, and that's where they burn the trash. And the seven or eight of these characters are all on this conveyor belt leading to the fire, and they reach out, and they hold each other's hand, oh. and they know it's, it's about to be over. There's no hope. Yeah, because if there's one thing I know about kids' movie, it's that all the characters die in the end. Yeah, there's no hope. <laughs> no, they usually die in the beginning, right? Yeah, they usually die in the beginning. But that just slays me. And then at the end, when the toys get dropped off at a new kid's house, when Andy has to give them up. Now, Woody, he's been my pal for as long as I can remember. He's brave, like a cowboy should be, and kind and smart. But the thing that makes Woody special is he'll never give up on you, ever. He'll be there for you, no matter what. I thought they got incinerated. No, they did. They they made it. The the little alien saved them. Huh. But it's just the to me, it's the power of friendship. And Gibby cries every time he sees someone holding hands. I do. <laughs> I can't. I can't go to malls. I can't go out to eat. Every it's time terrible. He sees a, every time I he sees a trash compactor. I think of Toy Story three every time. You know what's funny about this is that this isn't even the first time you've done this, and you did it with the same <laughs> Pixar thing. <laughs> still yep. Pixar. Like you're still doing it. You're you're committing the same foul with the same group of movies. What are you gonna do when we do an episode on best Pixar movies? The best Pixar I'm movie is Pixar. I'm on all of them again. They're all good guys. <laughs> Gibby's impression of Gibby's terrible. I, know. <laughs> I thought the toys were gonna die, but they didn't. It was so, John it was Travolta. so sad. Anyway. Toy Story 3. Share if you agree. Would you call me Sheriff? Oh, share if you agree. Got it. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Number two. I have seen thousands of movies in my life, and most of them are forgettable, and I'll never watch them again. Shut up. Look look at at me. me. I've seen 56. (laughs) I've seen all the Pixar movies. I keep talking about them. Twice. I find that this journey through the film canon is like painting for gold, where you do it a lot, and for the most part, what you find is nothing or it's completely forgettable. But then occasionally, every once in a while, you find that gem that made it all worth it. Then in the rarest of times, there is that maybe once every few years, there's a landmark moment where I love a movie so much that upon first viewing, I say to myself, this is one of the greatest films ever made. Of course, we're talking about 27 Dresses. Oh, that joke's back. Good. (laughs) Thought we left that a few episodes behind, but we didn't. That was the case with my next film, Room 2015, Lenny Abrahamson. (laughs) That's a name annoys me. Abraham. It's like like way too many syllables. (laughs) Which follows the story of a five-year-old named Jack and his mother, played by Brie Larson, who was just named Ma in the movie. We never learn her actual name. Who we quickly learn are confined to a 10 by 10 foot space by 
by a man who kidnapped and raped Jack's mother years earlier. She has named the space Room and turned it into a universe for Jack to protect him from the harsh realities of their situation. Eventually hitting her breaking point, she devises a risky plan to break free from captivity, bringing them face to face with something even scarier, the real world. I'm trying really hard not to speak in hyperbole here, but it's hard not to because I'm still trying to process what this film did to me. I saw it about five months ago, and I don't think a day has gone by where I haven't thought about it since. It's a movie about hope where no hope should exist, and you can immediately see the parallels between this and Life is Beautiful, where you've got two people staring injustice in the face, put into a situation they didn't deserve and fighting against it. And more importantly, they're refusing to let evil win. I was so invested in this mother and her son, and I was stunned by just like the white hot rage I felt at how angry I was at their captor. Like I wanted to be in the movie and just get my hands around this guy's neck for what he'd done to them. And I wanted to hug this kid, partially because he looks almost exactly like my nephew, so it actually felt a little personal to me. Little spoiler alert, they, th- there's a scene in which they do escape, and it is absolutely amazing. And I can't remember the last time I was that white knuckled and anxious during a movie as I yep. was during that scene. It feels cliche to say this movie felt so real or it took me to another place, but that was so true for this movie. In my subconscious, I was convinced that I was watching a true story, probably because I I wasn't familiar with Brie Larson, who was amazing in this movie. And there have been these types of stories in the news recently. What what I'm still struggling with is whether I was crying out of sadness or happiness, because it's a hopeful movie, but the hope is only gained after a lot of pain. I I guess the only real answer there is that I was crying out of both, knowing that hope is often born out of pain. Um, I'd also like to point out this film is why I don't trust the Oscars. It was nominated and lost to, and Jordan's about to get mad at me, a completely inferior film in Spotlight. I haven't seen Room yet, so that's not... Fair enough, but you love Spotlight. I do. I don't mean to criticize it. I right, just didn't, right. I I didn't love Spotlight. I love Spotlight. I believe or at least hope that history looks back on this film the way it does for Star Wars or Saving Private Ryan, other films that were robbed of Oscars. All are... the kids are going to have Room toys. <laughs> 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 look, I'm trapped in Room. <laughs> Those are films that are generally recognized as the better film now that, that lost, and this is a truly unique cinematic experience. I've been wanting to talk about this movie since we started this podcast. It absolutely bowled me over, um, and I'd absolutely recommend it one who's listening who hasn't seen it to, to check it out. Yeah, this is a fantastic film. You know, you guys mock Gibby here for my picks and <laughs> for speaking in the third person <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and not into your mic. But uh, if we can look back at our text from December 2015, uh, I saw a room at the Terra Film Theater in Atlanta and I sent a text to two of the three at this table and said, this movie is phenomenal. You need to go see it. And uh, thanks for putting me on that. What are you, stop your wine. What are you mad about that? I didn't go see it like the next day. Yeah, I should be so, mad so, that you so, didn't include me on so the text. I, so I say this. Uh, sorry, Jordan. I apologize. Uh, so I, I say this because, so I tell them to watch this and nobody watches it. Then Lance goes and sees it, freaks out, has a cow, put it on Facebook and, and everybody immediately says, this is a fantastic movie. I need to go watch it because Lance likes it. Then I say it four months earlier. Nobody pays attention. And where is the respect for Gibby? Well, let me tell you this, Gibby. At the time, I was the bad boy of film podcasting, <laughs> which is weird because we hadn't actually started a <laughs> podcast yet, but I still had that title. Yeah, definitely. So people respect that title as you will learn now that you have it. <laughs> and Lance doesn't cry in every movie he goes through. So yeah, we, so it's yeah, a little different. When he, when he does, it's special. You got to pace that stuff out, man. I did cry at this Are you comparing you sent a text to Lance and I and Steve and then Lance posted something on Facebook and got a big response. Were you expecting like a ton of random people (laughs) to jump on our text? I was expecting my three friends to say, oh yeah, I should go see that because I trust your film. Were you expecting your text to three people to go viral? Yeah, my my analogy was stupid. (laughs) I just expected my three friends to say. We're supposed to trust the guy who has such (laughs) taste that he says every Pixar movie. The boy, you've heard the boy who cried wolf story, right? Yeah. You're the boy who wept like a little bitch. <laughs>
That's the that's the that's the parallel. Yeah, but have I recommended movies for you to watch that you didn't like? I also I, like I the and Gibby's angry rant. He he stopped to say sorry, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean nothing by. This is a fantastic movie, and I do think it was shortchanged last year at the Academy Awards. It absolutely was. That scene you talked about where they escape is a phenomenal piece of filmmaking, and it's so intense and emotional. The, the, yeah, he uses an uh, I believe it's an overhead crane shot. Mm-hmm. Um, on the uh, see, I don't even want to get that much into it because you just got to see it but you, you it, I don't think I've ever wanted anything in my life as much as I did for that little boy to escape right. it, it's weird the way it just gets its claws in you and yeah. sucks you into the story it, it's remarkable Jordan your number one most cried <clears throat> at film my number one tear jerker is Swiss Army Man from earlier this year 2016 directed by two guys named Daniel Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shainert who refer to themselves as Daniels and it stars another Daniel this one of the Radcliffe varietal <laughs> second Radcliffe shout out and a Dan O first name Paul the movie got its word of mouth notoriety as the quote Lance is going to love this. A farting corpse movie. Mm. <laughs> and uh, that's not inaccurate. Paul Dano apparently agreed to do the project based on a one-line pitch by the Daniels. The first fart makes you laugh, and the last fart makes you cry. Huh. True story? Yeah, true story. <laughs> so it's the story of Paul Dano as Hank, a young guy who ran away from home and has been living on a deserted island off the coast of California and is literally at the end of his rope trying to kill himself when a dead body named Manny is washed ashore and together they embark on a journey back to civilization. In this absurdist and surrealistic world, it turns out that Radcliffe's gassy corpse is not only useful in a plethora of physical and practical ways, but is also exactly the friend that Hank needs. So we can go ahead and check off true friendship on the Jordan Will Cry list for Swiss Army Man because of the aforementioned friendship. But then we have Hank's strained and difficult relationship with his father. This part of the story, not unlike the rest of the movie, is told so well and with such efficiency and subtlety that it easily checks off box number two, father-son stuff. When these two factors collide near the end, I'm toast. A puddle of salty tears convulsing in my seat. Then there's a third ingredient in Swiss Army Man that I think further riles up my tear ducts, albeit in a pretty odd way. Much to Lance's chagrin. Sorry, Lance. Why do I keep coming up? Because you hate farts. You just... <laughs> I'm aggressively body function positive. Lance is not. And that's okay. And it's kind of a theme of the movie a little bit. Oh, oh big time. You guys aren't selling me on this. I'm a, I'm a crusader for the detabooing of body function in our culture. You act like there's some like oppression oh there is that. there is what it's like there you. are laws oh people like me no i mean you know it's not a, people don't like it when you fart in public i think this movie speaks to this issue in a way that no other movie i know has after the first act everything in the movie shifts the farts and the body functions and the other oddities and i mean the first act of this movie is is goofy but about 25 minutes in it it makes this shift where all of these things that were silly and goofy become meaningful and serious and constructive and it's such a strange thing I, like i can't even figure out how they were able to pull off that tone, the movie just starts blasting out these bits of truth, like a wolf in farts clothing. I know what you're thinking, and, and no. You have no idea what I'm thinking. I'm, well, I'm thinking I want this segment to end. Okay, well, I think they make a compelling case against how uptight and resistant we are to how healthy function of our bodies occurs. Manny speaks directly to this while seamlessly intertwining it with our sense of community and friendship in response to Hank telling him that he won't be free to flatulate in the real world. That's so sad. That's so sad. What are we even going back home for? It sounds like you're not allowed to do anything back there. Is that really the message of this movie? <laughs> like that's really what they're fighting? Then Manny later argues, If my best friend keeps his farts from me. What else is he hiding from me? 
Why does that thought make me feel so alone? Radcliffe plays, man, he's so simplistic and so childlike and so full of wonder that you're able to connect. I mean, it sounds silly with Jordan reading this had you not seen the movie. Yeah, definitely. It Uh, does. (laughs) Agreed. Watching this movie is probably the hardest I've cried in a couple of years watching a movie. Oh, me Which sounds ridiculous because he just described a bunch of stuff about farting and I just described crying incredibly hard. But this movie, it takes this turn at some point in the movie and Jordan kind of referenced it where it goes from being kind of gags and kind of about that message to it's essentially a movie about a guy who so desperately wants to connect with another human being but he's so broken and so unacceptable and he finally finds this in the the corpse and I don't want to get into too much of it but the act of finding something he's longing for so much and then losing it that's when I was just Mm. bawling and Manny sort of makes this closing argument in relation to the the fart arguments that he was making earlier he says but maybe everyone's a little bit ugly yeah maybe we're all just ugly dying sacks of and maybe all it'll take is one person to just be okay with that and then the whole world will be dancing and singing and farting and everyone will feel a little bit less alone. It, it's such a moving sentiment to me that, that we could all just be free from embarrassment and shame and just be human together. And what that world would be like where we're all just comfortable with ourselves and with each other and honest and open. And it, it's just this incredibly beautiful idea expressed in such a like crass way that I love. This convergence of the deep, meaningful friendship, the father-son subplot, and the earnestness and honesty and fearlessness with which the Daniels approached this entire movie is so beautiful and so intoxicating. Uh, I, I mean, I, I I won't be surprised if I cry every single time I, I ever watch this movie. If I cried every time I watched this movie, I would cry zero times. <laughs> well, you haven't seen the I, movie. Well, that's my point. I, it, I don't I don't know. I, this movie, as it was originally described to me, I had zero interest in watching it. I think it played at Sundance. I think it did well at Sundance, but it also had a lot of walkouts, I believe. I think they won Best Director. <laughs> did they? Yeah. It, so it actually did well. And then I started hearing, you know, people like you guys whose opinions I respect see it and love it and then i kind of wanted to see it even coming to this podcast but hearing you describe it like <laughs> it's getting less interesting to me yeah. so maybe one day if i'm really desperate and i've seen all the movies out there <laughs> i, and I this would, is the only one left i'll watch it and i'll i I'll would love, love it. to know what you would yeah. think about this movie uh, well, we'll see what happens my final grind movie is about time the 2013 movie uh, we talked about it before on the time travel episode, and I really fought against adding it here again because I didn't want to double up movies. You I'm fought no, against you. I'm no giddy. <laughs> I don't do this kind of thing, but this is by far my most cried at movie, and I had to include it here. I don't think that was what Gibby did wrong. I think you're safe. <laughs> I would That's have picked a, about time and then a time machine. And every movie with the word time in the title. <laughs> yeah. Then you would have done what Gibby did. Time after Just time. a quick recap on the plot. On his 21st birthday, Tim, played by Dom Mal Gleason, is told by his father, played by Bill Knight, that that he can travel through time. He can only travel to places that he's been before. So essentially he gets do-overs in his life. And he uses this as any 21-year-old would do in order to meet a girl. But while the movie starts off fun, it takes on more and more emotional heft as we learn even time travel can't change some things. And to me, this movie um, leans so much on music that I'm going to reference three different songs as I talk through this final segment. The first song is a track called Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Part. By Jorg. Um, but Garrett. <laughs> so in this final sequence, uh, we find out that Tim's father has cancer. And it's the response to this cancer and to his death that felt so genuine to me and so real, having dealt with death in my own life. When Tim greets his mom, he says, how are you? And she says, honestly, I'm f- 
furious. I'm so uninterested in a life without your father. Just this line hit me because it was so real and it's so what you want to say when you're grieving, but you're not allowed to, that I felt it was just this great kind of mirror of grief. Her character's in it. I feel like it's in it so little, but it's so good. Yeah. So um, as the father says goodbye to his son, he gives him the big secret of time travel, his secret formula for happiness. Part one, live every day like everyone else with the busyness and annoyances and distractions. And part two, live every day again, almost exactly the same, the first time with all the tensions and worries that stop us noticing how sweet the world can be, but the second time, noticing. I thought the key to time travel was the flux capacitor. Nope. Zing. (laughs) Continue. And we see him live this same day back to back, but then he says, some days you only want to go through once. Cue Nick Cave song into my arms. Uh, When his father finally passes away, his mom on the day of his funeral asks, are we ready for this? And a family friend responds, of course we're not. Hateful day. But Tim travels back to spend time with his dad before the funeral, as only time travelers can do. And there's a rule that they reveal about halfway through that if Tim has a baby, he can't travel back in time to before the birth of the child, because then the baby risks not being born. So when they become pregnant, he realizes he can't go back and see his dad anymore. He's going to be gone forever. So they spend one last day together, father and son, skipping stones on the beach. This followed by the birth of his third child. Cue the luckiest by Ben Folds. And he says he learned one final lesson. The truth is, I now don't travel back at all, not even for the day. I just tried to live every day as if I've deliberately come back for this one day, to enjoy it, as if it were the full final day of my extraordinary, ordinary life. And it's this combination of the movie's realistic portrayal of death and of grief, the fact that I lost my own father, and the belief that life is good and beautiful and worthy of being cherished. This movie was tailor-made in a lab somewhere specifically to make me cry. (laughs) So because this movie had been talked about before, I decided I should probably watch it so it wouldn't be the same, although you you did a great job with that, Hudson, much better than Gibby did when he said he just liked the movie. Which is odd because Gibby put nearly 20 minutes of prep time into the show, so... This might be the first time I've ever wept in a movie that I hated. (laughs) Really? Yeah. This movie had so much potential, and they had me absolutely hooked at the end when it finally shifts to father-son stuff, and the main character goes back in time, and he knows it's the last time he's going to see his dad. And they had such an opportunity here. And I'm already crying when when he goes back to see his dad because I know it's going to be the hardest goodbye of his life. And instead of that, what we get <laughs> is them breaking the rules, as far as yeah. I can tell, of the time travel in the movie. They, break they totally rule, yeah. break the rules. And instead, they take this cheap, easy way out. And they go back in time to when main character was a boy and they throw rocks on the beach. I felt so cheated after that because I wanted to see and feel and experience with them this impossible moment of saying bye to your father for the last time. Mm. And I didn't get it. And so instead I get this throwing rocks and I get main character just talking a bunch of feel good horse about like live every day. (laughs) I don't even time (laughs) travel anymore because I'm just living every day like it's my last. And it it made me so furious. It's like it could be reduced to an inspirational poster when somebody's cute at work. After that part, could. And they they just squandered this opportunity that that I haven't haven't seen an opportunity like that in a movie maybe ever before. (laughs) And they just wasted it. Mm. Well, that's that's a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) How How do you end that segment? I don't know. I think it's a pretty effective film. Did you not just hear everything Jordan said? Yeah, it's not I agree effective. With, I agree with him. You agree with Jordan? You uh-huh. hated it? I just didn't pay attention to what Jordan said. Wow. <laughs>
No. What are you doing I, over there? He was cramming for his final what are you, movie. Are you I understand what he says, that the end is kind of cheap. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, just I don't even know, know what he said. said. <laughs> now you're not sure whether you agree or disagree. You're just, you're just winging it. Yeah. <laughs> right, just go to your movie. Right, go to yeah, your next give movie. Me, give me your last one. I like what you said. <laughs> No, you don't. You don't like what he's saying. No, you may. You may not. Gibby, I hated I it. this movie that you love. I hated it. All right, go to your movie. I feel like I just sent a kid to his room. Go to your movie, Gibby. <sighs> My number one movie that makes me cry probably the hardest is the 2002 immigrant drama by Jim Sheridan called In America. What country does this take place in? I think it takes place in America. Uh, so it's a story about Irish immigrants. Father, mother, two daughters move to the mean streets of New York. It's not immediately revealed why they moved to New York. The father is an aspiring actor who wants to hit it big on Broadway. Isn't it because they're trying to get over the death of a child? Yes. I should point out I haven't seen this movie, but I'm more prepared to talk about <laughs> it than Gideon's. That's exactly why. And they're, yeah. they're illegal immigrants. Yeah, they're illegal immigrants. Oh. When I watched it again recently, I missed the first 30 minutes. So oh, that's a good way to watch a movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember if they... <laughs> He's like, you know what, guys? I've never actually seen this yeah. movie. I just read it you on know, the list. Sorry, I'm sure it makes people cry. <laughs> he Googled movies that make people cry. This is the first thing that popped up. Yeah. It's just their struggle of daily life to make it in a new country. Uh, the father in the film played by Patty Constantine, who I'd never heard of before this film. He's great in it. The reason they moved over is because they had their young son died. Yeah, I think I covered that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Their young son died, so they came over here to kind of just get away from it, and the father has completely closed himself off. You know, his only emotion is anger. He can't talk to his wife, can't talk to his kids, and it's just all angry. And that's kind of the way it is after the death of an immediate family member, because like Hudson, I've had one uh, in my life, too. And so you just kind of, there's ways you can go about it. There's healthy ways and unhealthy ways. Do you really feel like that? Like, I didn't get anger from him. Oh, I got a lot of anger from him. Yeah, and maybe fair, just... Gibby's never seen it. <laughs> yeah. That's true. On, yeah, the, the, on the cover, he looked really angry. There, it, I mean, it's kind of a, there's a good, yeah. <laughs> there's a good contradiction in this movie because in the same apartment building lives an artist. Who actually is angry. Yeah, who is angry. I mean, he's really angry. And there's a good contradiction between his anger versus the father's anger. It's good to see. Uh, I like movies where anger contrasts with anger. <laughs> yeah. Gibby, yeah. do we need to go back to the inside out emotions that you can <laughs> yeah. pick one to describe each character? Yeah. Maybe maybe he was disgust. I don't know. It wasn't joy. <laughs> I always get those mixed up. Yeah. Anger and joy. So the angry artist in the apartment building is played by Dijmon Honsu, who is great in this film, was actually nominated for an Academy Award. There's this great scene that Ebert actually talks about. Rebert. Um, yeah, Rebert. Rebert. Uh, in America has a moment wherein everything shifts when two characters face each other in anger. There's unexpected insight into the nature of their relationship. It's a moment sudden and true. Realize how sluggish many movies are in making their points and how quickly life can blindside us. Because he thinks that Damon Hunsu is in love with yeah, he wants to his fight wife. Him. Yeah, and so he wants to fight him. He's like, why are you hitting on my wife? A and fight he would definitely lose. Yeah, because Damon Hunsu is pretty ripped in this movie, even though he has AIDS. Was that offensive? I can't, I'm not sure that was <laughs> offensive. Still be ripped if you have AIDS. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't dying. Yet. But turns out, so there's this there's this great scene when he confronts the Demon Hunsu's character named Mateo. Do you want to be me? Do you want to be in my place? I wish. I in love with her. I in love with her. No. I'm in love with you. And I'm in love with your beautiful woman. 
And I'm in love with your kids. And I'm even in love with your unborn child. I'm even in love with your anger. I'm in love with anything that lives. That's a great scene. Yeah. And so what he's saying is Patty Constantine's alive and has a great family, but he doesn't realize it because he's so angry at the death of his son. Uh, and he sees this other perspective where you're alive. You've got a great family. Live in that. It's kind of a be thankful for what you have type. Yeah. Yada, yada, Put simplistically. Yada. Yeah. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. So the rest of the movie, I mean, that, that takes place three-fourths of the way of the movie. But there's a scene at the end of this film that... I think I've said this before today, but it breaks me. And it's when... How many times can you be broken? I'm, I've been broken a lot in my life, guys. It's the scene at the end when the father realizes that he, he comes to accept that his son's dead. And he's sitting out on a, the patio of the apartment. And Lance, give him a hug. Jeez, like his, it's so cold. You okay, buddy? The shell or this anger and everything just kind of falls away and he just accepts it. Hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful scene and it's... I wept. So if talking about movies that make me cry, this movie hmm. definitely makes me cry. I was emotional in the, in the same moment as Gibby. When the dad's shell is cracked and the wall's broken down, it's so incredibly beautiful. I just wept almost as hard as I did in Swiss Army Man. Yeah. And I, it made me wonder if maybe I'd, I'd tapped into why the father-son stuff bothers me so much. Or not bothers me, but gets me so emotional. Which, my, my dad is awesome. I love my dad very much. My dad and I have a great relationship. But my dad's not emotional. And so I think when I see a father being emotional in a movie and having that emotional connection with his kids, it just like breaks something open inside of me. I don't even know if it's that I want my relationship with my dad to be different because I don't. I think it taps into how I want to be as a father and how I hope I can be. And this movie just really struck that chord with me. You guys have totally sold me on this movie. I've never seen it. And now I really, really want to. Well, just, what that's just be warned, like most movies like this, they stick a truly terrible song in the end credits. So just turn it off before <laughs> that song? happens. I don't even know what Kiss it was it's just me. awful <laughs> <laughs> All right. i don't want to live let's bring this thing home fellas field of dreams phil alden robinson's 1989 film follows the story of farmer ray kinsella played by kevin costner as he starts hearing voices in his iowa cornfield instructing him to build a baseball field he does just that attracting the ire of the local townspeople who believe he's lost his mind and the unsettled spirits of long deceased major league baseball players who start showing up to play on his field ultimately he discovers the purpose of the field which is to, was to reconnect with his father who died years ago and with whom he never reconciled their rocky relationship the movie works as a kind of mystery movie where Costner goes on a journey trying to figure out why this voice is talking to him is even questioning his own sanity in the process and it's an odd but beautiful mixture of sport and the supernatural and it gets into the essence of the relationship between our national pastime and the way it bleeds into our relationships with each other and at its core it's a father-son story it's about how a game can be a conduit to something so much bigger and more meaningful and Jordan I know you and I have had conversations Gibby and I are big sports fans and you and Hudson are not so much and I know you've often questioned like why do people get so into sports and I get that yeah. from a perspective this gets to the heart of what it is and it's the this idea that sports can be that single lifeline between two people when every other form of communication has been severed. There's a scene at the end where Ray realizes he's standing face to face with his father. Is there a heaven? Oh yeah. It's the place dreams come true. This is heaven. 
challenging myself to watch that scene to see if I could hold back from crying and I couldn't I did it years ago I watched it like three times in a row cried every single time I watched it yesterday just to make sure the clip was available on YouTube I found myself sitting in Starbucks thinking don't do it don't do it <laughs> and I did it and my eyes were filled to the brim with tears did you um, did you play a lot of catch growing up I did I did. Okay. If this movie doesn't make you cry, go to the YouTube clip of the final scene and look in the comments section. And it, it is a torrent of men who miss their fathers, wept in this scene, and clearly have psychological struggles with their dad that this film brought to the surface. I want to read a couple of them to you because these are gut-wrenching. One man said, I'm 37 years old. I haven't had a catch with my dad in 25 years. I guess a lot of things got in the way, but I'm grateful for those times and the one and only thing, that beautiful thing that me and my dad still share together, baseball. I think you should read these in the voices where you read the, <laughs> the wacky voices. <laughs> the next guy said, this one's this one's tough. I lost my dad about a year ago. He was killed by a drunk driver. A few days after the accident, we turned off the life support and I whispered in his ear, thanks for loving me, dad. This scene, this scene brings out such intense emotions. I would give anything to tell him I loved him, but that was torn away from me by a drunk driver. I'll see you in heaven, dad. At one point, there was a witch hunt trying to figure out who the two people were who disliked this film on the YouTube <laughs> up and down section so they could be publicly shamed. It was hilarious. like people were so protective of this because of what it meant to them. It, to get a little personal, my dad and I are on good terms, but we had some rocky years where communication was hard. And I do remember there was a time where the only way we seemed to be able to relate to each other was talking about Braves baseball. And I think that's not an uncommon experience for a lot of men. Yeah, I cry at almost every sports movie. You cry at almost every movie. (laughs) I actually took your challenge, Lance. Mm -hmm. I had seen this years ago and I I think it's a great movie. But so I watched the last scene and I won. I I didn't cry. You didn't do it. I didn't, but... Did you win or lose, Jordan? I had cried so much this week (laughs) that I I really feel like I won for watching something and not crying. My dad and I played catch growing up, but it it was never the meaningful thing that my dad and I did together. And so I just don't, I don't have that connection. I don't don't get the, the whole like father son thing in movies doesn't doesn't do anything i think i think what it is Hmm. hudson i mean for me at least is that usually the time where you and your dad connect over baseball is when you're still young when there's still an innocence to your relationship before things have gotten rocky and i think what it does is it often takes men back to a time before they lost their dad or a time before things got difficult between them and their dad when they grew up and got bullheaded or their dad left their family or like whatever variety of things that happens between dads and their family this always go back goes back to an era before that i I think it it represents it's it's a a metaphor for a sort of not replacement but a a wordless conversation between a father and a son it's a back and forth yes and it's quality time spent and even with dads who may be emotionally closed off or or things like that i understand why it feels like a real connection Mm -hmm. i find all the all this fascinating though i mean maybe it's because i don't have an emotional reaction to the father son stuff that i can step back a little bit but i i think it's interesting that men especially you know they bring their boys up not to cry 
You know, get up, brush yourself off. Don't let it bother you. But there's, for whatever reason, the manliest of men crying at sports is okay. Well, but again, they're not crying at sports. They're crying at the place that sports are just a vehicle in all of this. And I think that's what people who don't love sports, and I'm not saying everybody should love sports, but they're not getting it necessarily. Thank you. But for a lot of men, like when you grow up playing baseball and your dad's on the field with you every day, it becomes this thing that you connect over. It has nothing to do with a game involving a glove and a ball. It has to do with an event and a connection over something, whatever that thing looks like. And it's not baseball for everyone. For some people, it's it's music. They listen to music with their dad. For some people, it's fishing. For some people, it's a lot of different things. This is one of those movies that had we not included it on this podcast, a lot of people would have been like, well, well we should say when we there. asked this question on Facebook, what <laughs> movies made you cry? Uh, there were three different comments. They mentioned all three of your movies. Like yeah. Um, you populist. Wow. Boom. <laughs> I just roasted you. I don't know if you use the right word, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyways. Oh, by the way, I think, I think Phil James is an amazing movie yeah. and I absolutely love it, but it, it still falls into my uh, kind of fantasy ish. Yeah. Alrighty. What are you guys excited about this week? I'm excited about a few weeks ago when I talked a bunch of trash about No Country for Old Men. One of our listeners challenged me to read the book, which I hadn't read. And so John Carroll sent me a copy of the book and I started reading it yesterday and I love it and I can't wait to open it up again. And I already like it more than the movie. So I'm not sure that his plan is working in making me appreciate the movie more because of it, but it's definitely making me really appreciate the book. I'm excited about a television sitcom called the Good Place, created by Michael Schur, who uh, also created the wonderful Parks and Recreation and was writer on The Office. It's a show starring Ted Danson and Kristen Bell. Um, she's a person who dies and gets sent to, quote unquote, the good place on accident. It's just a really heaven? fun... Well, they explain it. It's not heaven so much, but it's a good place. As opposed to a bad place. Yeah, as opposed... To, there is a bad place. Uh, and, I saw a couple episodes of this and I was like, eh. Well, thanks for ruining what I was excited about. Didn't make uh, you cry? Ted Danson's great in it. Yeah, Ted Danson Ted is great. Danson. I when is he not great? Anyway, uh, it's the the second season, I believe, starts 1st of January. So catch up. It's only nine episodes in so far. I'm going to say Arrival, uh, which will have been out a couple of weeks by the time that this episode airs, hits, drops, put is, is put up. But it's uh, an amazing film, a beautiful piece of science fiction directed by Denise Villeneuve, written by Eric Heisserer. Wow, some really cool names. Tough, tough names. <laughs> yeah, you're on it. Uh, based on the short story by Tom Chang. Amy Adams plays a linguist charged with deciphering alien language when alien ships mysteriously show up all across the world. But it's a lot deeper than that, and uh, I just thought it was a gorgeous film and definitely recommend if you're looking for something to watch this weekend. I'm excited to see it. floating around. Yeah, Check me too. Do you know Denise Bonu is directing the uh, <laughs> sexy the, the next the, S the Blade Runner sequel. Oh, is that right? Yeah, the guy's got quite an eye. He's made at least two pretty good films. Some people says he has two. <laughs> <laughs> blue eyeballs eyeball blues mm. um <laughs> that's a line from batman by the way i finally watched the documentary tickled oh, I which, see which hudson too. had recommended yeah, to me it, it, it got a lot of uh press on the on the on the film festival circuit it was finally bought by hbo documentaries it, it if i describe the plot it's going to sound insane but it's basically about a documentary filmmaker who finds out about a league of competitive tickling where men try to tickle each other make them laugh and as he starts to figure out what what this world is he starts to get threatened by the the, the people 
people who run the league. And he starts to find out they have criminal history. I mean, I don't want to go too far into it, but it's about how they start threatening him and he sort of becomes part of the story. And it's a documentary that turns into this kind of like dark mystery movie. It, it was really good. I, I didn't love it as much as I thought I would, but it's absolutely worth a watch if you get a chance. And and, and like part, I, Parts are funny. Parts are really disturbing. Yeah. And it's just a weird mix of... It's available on iTunes now. I've been, I've been looking for this one for a while and it's well worth a watch. You've been looking for a good tickling documentary for a while. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's finally someone had the courage to deal with the league of male competitive tickling. <laughs> and it, it speaks volumes about where our society is. Mm. Pretty fascinating. Thanks for listening, guys. That's it. Thank yeah, you. We did Thanks. It. Join us next week when we'll each pick a director and go in depth on three of each of their films. We'll be talking about directors that range from obscure to uh, very obscure, except for Hudson, who instead chose to use this opportunity to talk about movies you've seen a few hundred times already. But at least he didn't pull a Gibby and choose all of Pixar. In the meantime, here's a message from the founder of the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Toodaloo! It is Alan Alda here. I, I love what you fellas are doing with the podcast. It's great stuff. Uh, let, let us know how your list differs at, at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter, or uh, email us at Fight About Film at gmail.com. It's great stuff. Uh, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Uh, Four Friends Fight About Film was produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a great city. If you've never been there, fantastic. Uh, this episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Great guy. Great guy. Love what he's doing. 